Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Keith Dwemling, Director of Cybersecurity Technology Protection at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm Anthony Guerra, Founder and Editor-in-Chief. Keith, thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks. Glad to be here. All right, Keith, you want to start off by telling me a little bit about your organization and your role? Sure. I appreciate the time, Anthony. Um, so I'm a Director of Technology Protection here at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, overall, I'm responsible for several teams of engineers uh, who support a number of cybersecurity platforms that are used throughout our enterprise to protect our clinical business and research operations uh, throughout North America and Europe. I've been with the Cleveland Clinic for uh, going on five years, and prior to that, I had uh, about 13 years uh, previous in healthcare at another organization within Northeast Ohio. Excellent. All right. Um, a little bit more about your career journey. Um, I know you're in the military, so if you want to just tell me, I like to find out how people wound up in healthcare IT security. It's a pretty specific little niche to wind up in. So just take us a little bit through your, your career and how you wound up where you are. Sure. That's a great question. Um, like most individuals, um, you know, when I embarked on this uh, journey, uh, my intention wasn't uh, cybersecurity. Uh, to be honest, and it actually wasn't even um, IT. I started out um, after uh, my time in the in the service uh, with the with the U.S. Army as a quartermaster. Um, I started out as uh, studying to be a pharmacist, mm. and then ultimately found um, my interest took me into technology, and then from there I dabbled with uh, technology, and then made it my profession, and then made the switch to cybersecurity probably. I want to say going on almost 20 years ago, probably before it was actually considered cybersecurity. It was more computer security at that point. Um, and then I was lucky enough to uh, get uh, brought on board with a, a regional hospital system uh, where I had different roles. Um, and then about uh, four, four and a half years ago, I had the privilege to come over here to the Cleveland Clinic. So got a lot of background from uh, an engineering standpoint, uh, system admin, uh, architecture, uh, some programming, uh, and a number of other things that have uh, brought me to this point uh, in, in my career uh, from a cybersecurity standpoint. A lot of different experience and a lot of different uh, teams that I've been part of, and it's really been uh, quite a complex journey as well. I, I do, however, credit uh, my success to my time uh, in the service because that really helped to um, you know, instill that that uh, the importance of service uh, and collaboration, uh, because as we know, that's that's part of being in the military is, uh, you know, working on high performing teams and uh, solving complex problems as a group. And that's what uh, is required in IT and certainly is required in cybersecurity, especially in the healthcare environment. Very good. So you mentioned you were at some point interested in becoming a pharmacist. How far did you go down that in terms of training? Um, I was about in my, uh, towards the end of the first year when, you know, I, I kind of reflected back and realized that it probably wasn't um, going to be the calling for me. Uh, my interest was in the science, uh, but not necessarily in all of the other aspects that it takes to be a su successful pharmacist. Um, and that's when I was exploring some other opportunities and um, got into actually web design and web programming. And that was uh, the start of the journey. And from, from there, it was off to the races, to be honest. 
What would you say it is about cybersecurity that pulled you in that direction as opposed to taking you in more of a CIO route? Um, I think for me, from a cybersecurity standpoint, uh, the ability to really focus on a pretty significant need that also has um, a lot of complexity to it um, and is constantly changing uh, as well. Uh, you know, as as you, if you think about cybersecurity, it, it's a constantly evolving threat landscape where uh, the techniques and and the methods of five years ago are are generally not what we see right now as being, uh, you know, what threat actors are using. And I have to imagine that five years from now, we're going to see different types of uh, techniques employed that we can only uh, think of at this point, uh, not as uh, a reality, but just theoretical attacks. So it's constantly evolving. Um, and, and I like that uh, that rate of change that keeps you, uh, you know, constantly learning. You know, you're, you're effectively a lifelong learner if you want to be successful in cybersecurity. Right. You better be, right? Otherwise, <laughs> you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. All right. Um, what what do you, would you say or one of or two of the most important trends that you are trying to position your organization to handle? Um, that's, that is a good question because there's a lot of different trends out there. I think... Um, you know, if I, I think of the top one or two, um, you know, really third-party risk um, is one of the biggest trends that uh, that organizations of all different types are challenged with because with globalization um, and outsourcing and other activities, there's so many, um, you know, secondary and tertiary organizations that are participating in the care delivery process. So it, it the, the responsibilities don't just stop at the traditional walls of the organization. They continue out to the partners. Um, and then I think a, another thing that's really top of mind is, is the evolving definition of what a device is to protect and what a caregiver could be using. Uh, you know, if you think back 10 years ago, uh, cell phones and tablets didn't have the role that they that they have now in the clinical process. So um, you know, just protecting workstations in their tr traditional form is not a technique that scales any longer. We have to uh, protect a number of different devices that support a number of different use cases um, and then realize that that's going to continue to change as technology evolves, like uh, virtual reality, uh, sending clinical devices into people's homes, um, you know, the, the fact that patients can bring their own technology that they use for diagnostics and, and recording uh, results uh, back into the clinical environment in some way. So, uh, you know, so that, so that what we have to protect is constantly changing. And, and I think that's an important trend that we have to keep thinking about. And is that, uh, so that it, when you talk about devices there, you're not even talking about really the biomedical devices that the hospital owns, which is its own huge challenge and problem, right? It, are we thinking about devices in two different ways, sort of the the more um, the ones that people are going home with, they're bringing in their own devices, the phones and all that. And then we have the infusion pumps and all that, which is a whole nother ball of wax, correct? Yeah, we have traditional devices, which are owned by the organization, third-party devices, and then, you know, the rise of uh, patient-owned devices that are in the mix as well that need protection in some form or fashion. And that's where it's really challenging because obviously you can't deploy traditional tools onto someone's privately owned device, but you are 
to some degree still responsible for uh, the protection of their information and certainly the protection when it comes to the care that, that they receive. I wonder if if, uh, if you ever get in a situation where as these things move so quickly on the clinical side, I don't know the view you have to that and that uh, healthcare IT professionals and security professionals have to some of the things that are going on on the clinical side, perhaps new things, people things people are trying and it might get to you and you go, they're doing what? Right. <laughs> it, it does happen. It does happen. I think that that underscores the importance of maintaining a, a strong relationship with different areas of the organization, not just being there when they come to you with an ask, but really getting out in front of uh, the demand and the need for IT services and cyber services and, and building those relationships so that, you know, by the time the ask is made, we hopefully will have already been in, involved in the process long before it ever got to that point. So, you know, bringing cyber out of the back room, if you will, and to the customer is an essential part of being successful in today's day and age, in my opinion. So you want to build the relationships and and make everyone comfortable with coming to cybersecurity to run things by you, to get things cleared and all that. So that takes good relationships. They have to understand why it's important that they come to you. And then you also have to have it baked in structurally so they have to come to you when it hits purchasing or things like that. So would you say it's a combination of all those things that 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 get you in a good place from a process point of view? Um, I think you summarized it very well. That is the probably the, the closest to an ideal state right now we have to uh, embed cyber into the different phases of inception when technology or solutions are brought into the organization. It, it really is about trying to be a partner at the different stages so that we can advocate for the needs uh, from a cyber standpoint early on in the process and be part of solving the needs and, and solving the challenges as opposed to saying, no, we can't do this after it's been thought about for you know potentially months or even years, because at that point it's too late and then we're definitely a business uh, inhibitor at that point. Right. And when you do find out something sort of on the network after the fact, I've talked to other CISOs uh, and they still take a very sort of forgiving approach. They don't want to be an impediment to business. So it's OK, we'll look at it. This isn't how it was supposed to go, but it's on now. Um, and they won't sort of uh, pull it off unless they absolutely have to. Uh, but I guess you want to then go back and say, well, what was the process breakdown that made it not come through us correctly in the proper way? Yep, I agree completely. I mean, it's it's like being embedded in the earlier stages of the supply chain process. You know, the earlier we can get into that, and hopefully the processes are well established, the the greater chance we have of being involved with something before it just appears on the network, and then we're forced to react to its presence. Right, right. Let's talk a little bit about um, business continuity planning, disaster recovery. I find one of the most interesting areas that I think people need to work on is that potential transition to paper and back again and what that would look like, you know, table topping it and all that. Um, and, and my biggest question is always who's making sure the clinicians know what to do. If, if the, if the call comes from it security that says we have to take you offline in an hour or a shorter period of time, you know, who's managing that process to make sure they know what to do at that point. Uh, and then that whole process of coming back from paper probably should be tabletop too. But what are your thoughts around that? 
Yeah, I think that that is is definitely a challenge. Um, you know, the thought of going to paper for an extended period of time, I think, um, you know, definitely produces a lot of thoughts about the risk associated with that, uh, both to the business from a revenue standpoint, but more importantly, from a patient safety standpoint. So, you know, I think that that's caused us to elevate the conversation of losing IT systems less as uh, an inconvenience and more towards the, 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 the position of losing a piece of critical infrastructure uh, within the hospital system. And so approaching it less as just the responsibility of IT, but more of an organizational yeah. responsibility to be ready for that is, is how we see that process maturing for those organizations. They're really thinking about the, how do we respond and stay at the same level of service and, and, and patient safety if and when something should happen. Um, and it requires additional testing well beyond tabletop exercises to make sure that if it happens, you're ready for it to happen. Right. And you mentioned third parties. And I suppose most businesses, but especially health systems, are are very dependent on the vendors that they use to run their software. Um, so, you know, they, they, people are working out new processes for bringing vendors on, more stringent processes for bringing them on. But I've heard one of the biggest challenges is the the existing vendors. So, yeah, we could come up with a new process for bringing you on, but we've got... 100, 200, 300, 400 vendors uh, who all now should be held to a higher standard because we have a new standard. So how do we go back? What's the process for going back and working through everybody? And then it's not just one and done, right? Are we going to re review them annually? Are we going to review them every time they've had some sort of material change, which acquired, they acquired somebody, somebody acquired them. So it's a massive, massive issue. So what are your thoughts about managing that? Well, I think if we only had a couple hundred vendors to to manage, we'd probably be, you know, re really um, looking forward to that day. But, uh, you know, at the clinic, we have um, thousands of vendors of different types that provide different services. You know, the challenge, as, as you outlined, is just the sheer magnitude and scale. Uh, also, the maturity of some of these vendors. Some of them are very small, you know, a half a dozen to a dozen individuals. And then you have the uh, large service providers that have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of employees and then everything in between. Um, so managing that at a program level and going through a recertification, a questionnaire process, all of that um, is very cumbersome, especially if you're trying to do it through a manual uh, mechanism and having people, you know, moving Excel spreadsheets, sending mm -hmm. questionnaires and looking at that. So I think it requires a combination of techniques. Um, one, using automated um, and centrally managed portals and, and tools to really serve as a force multiplier so that you can uh, contact um, those hundreds or thousands of vendors simultaneously. Um, it, it requires integrating it into the incident response uh, processes within an organization. So if you learn that a vendor has an issue, you can respond quickly and consistently. And then I think looking across the entire market, that's where you know we will continue to see the rise of cybersecurity frameworks specific to healthcare, where if an organization can demonstrate that they're high trust, ISO, uh, NIST certified, it helps to go, uh, it, it helps to bring you to that, that closer point where you can understand the maturity of what's on their side and, 
and, and not make it a, um, a unique process for every vendor. So it, it's really a combination of things to put together um, you know, a functional third-party risk program at, at scale like we do with the Cleveland Clinic and for other national healthcare organizations. So great points. Uh, we're still talking about questionnaires and things like that with, with these third-party vendors. Um, it's tough enough to manage if you were able to say with 100% confidence that everything that's ever been submitted to us in a questionnaire is true. It's still a tough process, but we don't know that. These are companies, God bless them, but these are companies that want to attain the business and may be perhaps tempted to attest to certain things that are not accurate. I mean, are you? do you think of sort of saying, all right, we're going to have to do, we can do questionnaires for most of them, but for the top 100, I know you said you have a lot of vendors. So for the top 100, we need to go beyond the questionnaire because they're so critical to the function of organization. We need to do more uh, at whatever that means. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that's that's a spot on observation. I mean, you know, it goes back to the old adage of trust but verify. And there's a couple different ways to approach that um, that will help to get that validation that what someone said and attested to was accurate at the time and remains accurate. And I think it's a combination of follow-up questionnaires, follow-up assessments, um, using those frameworks, but then also using third parties as well that will analyze the reputation of the vendors and provide you uh, a scorecard, of, if you will, of that, um, that vendor so that you can use that as kind of a, a third party itself to assess the third parties to balance out, you know, what was said versus what was observed. So if you're seeing, um, you know, a, a, a well-formed attestation, but then on the scorecard, they are a D, it's, uh, you know, you suspect that there might be some misalignment and then you can prioritize for further investigation at that point. So. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's 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 not the same as the dynamic you have with cyber insurance. I read an article this week where a cyber insurance company was refusing to pay out on a claim. I think it was MFA because the organization had said in their question, uh, the health system had said, we use MFA. Uh, and turns out after there was an incident and they tried to get the claim paid, the insurer said, well, well, turns out you weren't using MFA. We're not paying. It doesn't quite work that way with the questionnaires that health systems are giving their third parties. You don't have that same mechanism of saying, well, you, were, you weren't using it, so we're not going to pay. It's just a different kind of dynamic. But I guess the, let's put a question around um, cyber insurance. Just your, your general thoughts on, on trends there. We know uh, the costs are up that you have to pay. The deductibles are higher. The costs are higher. You have to jump through more hoops. Uh, what are your thoughts around the state of cyber insurance? I think that cyber insurance is going to continue to evolve um, when it comes to the value that it provides to organizations. You know, I, I understand that the underwriters and the insurance carriers are, are challenged because cyber threats aren't decreasing, they're only increasing. And, you know, at some point we'll 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 see the exit of some providers from that uh, that market because that their risk when it comes to a payout level is is just too high. And we'll also continue to probably see the, the rates and, and the costs uh, go up that are, are, are given to those who are pursuing cybersecurity insurance. So I think it's going to be something that we will see the adoption go through different waves, if you will, where mm -hmm. 
Uh, it may be too costly for some of the systems that are, are smaller and more budget um, constrained to, to pick up. And then as you know, demand drops, then theoretically the cost may come down. Um, it, it's probably going to take you know probably five to ten years to really see where cyber insurance fits in the cybersecurity ecosystem, especially as we're driven more to as we always have been to prevent as opposed to cover ourselves for you know a, a potential exposure. Um, so it, it's a it's a slippery slope and a difficult question. And unfortunately, hmm. I don't think I have a good answer for that because I. I unfortunately don't have a crystal ball when it comes to that. I, I think that organizations will have to make a decision on an organization by organization basis if if they want to pursue it based on the cost versus benefit and the likelihood of an event and and the actual likelihood of a of a payout from the insurance provider. Right, and we do we hear about some health systems talking about self insuring and things like that. If 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 it's if the costs are too exorbitant that it doesn't make financial sense and this money is better spent in other ways to reduce our risk, then we're going to spend it in other ways. So, Absolutely. yeah, that makes sense. Um, you mentioned high trust ISO NIST uh, as as sort of stamps that can help uh, make it you know more comfortable with the vendor. Uh, could you ever see a scenario? I don't, I don't know if you're there yet where that's a requirement uh, to be to be used that the Cleveland Clinic, for example, that you need some kind of stamp? Or is it, are we still in the situation where sometimes there are those niche applications that the physicians say, this is the only game in town, this is what we want. And then, you know, Keith, figure, <laughs> figure out how to secure this thing. And then you go, well, this thing's a mess, but I'll, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that is... That is still the case. You know, we we have providers that are niche in nature, and they're the only ones that are able to provide some functionality that's been determined critical from a clinical standpoint. We will continue as an industry, I think, not just the Cleveland Clinic, to to push vendors of various sizes to adopt frame a framework or or some type of framework, maybe not the same one as a means to simplify the process. I could see uh, future legislation actually coming out that mandates that medical device, medical software vendors pursue, you know, one of a, mm -hmm. of a short list of frameworks so that it, it helps at an industry level, um, you know, to obtain that uh, increased level of comfort. I, I think that on the private side, we're, we're we're in a difficult position to push that type of mandate forward without a large coalition across all the different hospital systems. And that's something that's potentially taken up better at the uh, at the federal legislative level, in my opinion, to be perfectly honest. And how have you had those? I'm sure you have those conversations with um, key stakeholders, you know, physicians um, regarding the the security status, I mean, of, of a application they want to use and how, how do you handle that do you sort of take them through um what you what you're looking for and perhaps why there might be a gap in the product that they that they want rolled out and do you just have that conversation yeah we we have we have that conversation reg regularly and i i'm happy to say that the the clinic is uh you know, our our physicians are very in tune to the challenges from a cybersecurity standpoint. You know, to varied degrees, but they, every time we 
well, almost every time, you know, the vast majority of times we encounter physicians, they are very supportive of doing what is best from a cyber standpoint. They're always supportive about doing what's best from a patient safety standpoint. I think that's one of the things that makes the Cleveland Clinic, you know, one of the leaders in healthcare that it is, is because of that commitment to patient safety. So we do have different conversations. We we definitely have a proactive process for educating our clinical staff on, on the needs from a cyber standpoint, and they certainly educate us on the needs from a, from a patient care standpoint. And then we can reach that middle ground and shared understanding so we can have a collaborative conversation with the vendor. So we, we've not received very much resistance at all when it comes to infusing the concept of, of patient safety with, with cyber safety as well. So, uh, and, and it's, it's helped us immensely to drive the program forward to the state that it is, that it is now. What's your advice on having the conversation with the vendor where you have to say, Hey, you know, there's interest here for your product, but here's what we need to happen from a cyber point of view to make us comfortable on this side. How do you manage? And tell me, is that how it goes? And how do you manage that? Because again, you're in an interesting spot. You've got users that you need to satisfy that would like this application to roll out. You've got a vendor here that, you know, your objective here is to get this product where it needs to be so it can be used by your organization. So I would imagine you have varying degrees in terms of the reception you get from that vendor and their willingness or ability to do what you need done with the product. So tell me how you manage that conversation. I, I think you you brought up a great point, which is really how we have most of the conversations. We, we talk with the vendors about what do we have to do uh, and what can be demonstrated to, to show that the product is operating at a high security rate or a high secure level so that we can bring it into the organization to, to meet the, the patient uh, care needs. And we also try and position that as something that if, if we observe something or provide feedback and it can be integrated into the product or their service offering, um, it, it actually strengthens their product and makes it easier for them to go to market and get adoption in other in other hospital systems and in other applications. So we really try and pivot the conversation away from, you know, negative things have been identified and you have to um, remedy these things before they can be brought into the organization as to we're providing you actually with a beneficial service by giving sure. feedback that you can then take to make your product better. And then, you know, and then cyber can be one of the, the many, um, you know, talking points and strengths to your product that will help you to get it into other hospital systems. I spoke to one CISO who said she felt like she wound up being CISO for all these little vendors. It, it does happen that way sometimes. <laughs> yeah, very good. Um, all right, let's talk a little bit. Of, you're, you're working on your MBA. Um, so tell me about your, your why you wanted to go get that and how you think it will help you in your work. Yeah, you know, when I think I've mentioned that my background is very technical in nature, and I think that uh, IT and cyber individuals, that is one of their strengths, but that can also be one of their greatest weaknesses is that we have a difficult time sometimes really interfacing with the business and understanding the business operations, the business priorities, um, and, and the things that really move the organization mm -hmm. in the direction that, that it goes. So, you know, when I was looking at my long-term growth, I, I saw that as a limitation and wanted to, you know, really be able to 
think less as an IT cyber professional and more as a healthcare uh, administrator. Um, and that's what, uh, you know, brought me to the point where a healthcare focused MBA was, you know, on my radar as opposed to, you know, the next cybersecurity certification or, you know, a PhD in cybersecurity. And I think that's a challenge that uh, a lot of healthcare uh, or uh, IT executives in healthcare are facing themselves is how do I continue to evolve um, so that I can interface uh, and, and when I get that seat at the table, keep that seat at the table through relevant feedback and input that is less about the IT and more about the business enablement. So that was my goal behind pursuing that. And I'm I'm happy to say that I'm almost done with the program. So I'm looking forward to it. Was it was it uh tough? Was it a lot of work, especially with your day job? Um, you know, there were there have certainly been some long nights, uh, very supportive for my family for <laughs> putting up with it um and helping me through. But uh, you know, it's it's a testament to uh, the program that's at Penn State. It's it's not an easy program, but it, it definitely helps you move moves you in the right direction. Well, let's talk a little bit about burnout, something we hear about a lot with clinicians, um, but I suspect it's also a huge problem, uh, especially with cybersecurity folks, because it can be a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week job if you let it, um, because things happen all hours of the night, every, you know, things go down. Um, so your thoughts on that, do you see that as a critical issue among healthcare IT security folks? And do you have any advice for how you manage it? Um, and and my second question would be, what do you do to relax and what are your hobbies besides getting MBAs? <laughs> um, you know, I definitely think it's it's a real challenge. I mean, yeah. we're facing labor shortages, you know, in the in the the global economy as a whole. Uh, and then if you look in healthcare on the clinical side, there's there's significant shortages and that extends into cyber. I think a recent statistic showed that cyber was down nationwide, uh, somewhere between 500,000 and 750,000 jobs. Um, and and that's, that's probably only getting more significant as burnout does uh, continue, uh, especially in these challenging economic times. I think that as leaders, you know, we need to really uh, take a hard look at how we manage our teams and make sure that work-life balance is something that's not sacrificed um, whenever possible, um, and that we are cognizant of the needs of, of the people who, who are under our responsibility um, and, you know, make sure that they get the type of support that they need, you know, that, that encouragement to take meaningful PTO and not be checking your email while you're on PTO, mm -hmm. advocating for appropriate staff and seeing if there's other opportunities to either automate to reduce the uh, the level of uh, efforts or you know other things that can be done to reduce that burden that's put on people um, you know I I make some goals um, specifically for myself about you know time spent away from work um, you know using your PTO and spending time with your family and and trying to develop those who, uh, who report to me and who I'm peers with so that they can provide appropriate coverage um, so that I can, you know, step away from the organization and, and have meaningful time. So, um, you know, it's really something that you have to invest a lot of effort into, surprisingly enough, to be able to have that balance. It's not going to just come about because, and it's not something that just because you close the laptop at 5 p.m. that 
the stresses are, are gone with that. So you really have to be uh, intentional about how you position yourself yourself in the organization and 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 everybody within the organization to support you know appropriate levels of of stress management and workload and your your second question you know aside from trying to get multiple MBAs <laughs> I I I have a very loving family uh, and I enjoy spending time with all my kids uh, my wife and I love to travel so now with COVID passing we're looking forward to. Uh, to getting out there, uh, you know, exploring more of the world. Um, and then, you know, like most IT people, sci-fi and, and, and uh-huh. other like that are, you know, um, things of interest to me. So if my, uh, if my family can't find me, I've, I've probably disappeared somewhere to watch a sci-fi movie or read a sci-fi book. And they eventually find me and drag me back to reality and then, <laughs> you know, have me doing something. But Love you, it. you gotta take those opportunities to relax when you can. Absolutely. Love it. All right. Final question. Um, any final piece of advice to someone in a comparable position at a comparable sized health system? What would your best piece of advice be to them? I think that from a development standpoint, uh, you have to remember that growth is is comes in two forms, typically evolutionary and revolutionary. And you have to be willing to take advantage of the slow growth opportunities within your organization or those moments where an opportunity is thrust upon you, um, you know, maybe not in the best of circumstances, mm-hmm. you can radically grow your career, radically learn something new. Um, and then, uh, you know, take those two, those two types of opportunities when they come and then try and make sure to have fun with it. You know, life is too short to have just a job. This is a career, a profession for so many people. And there are many ways to enjoy what we do, especially in healthcare because of the value that we provide to so many people in need. Yeah, I just to revisit your other point about uh, developing people, I mean, you you solve so many problems when you do that, right? It's what you're supposed to be doing, right? You're supposed to be mentoring, developing them and all that. Uh, and then if you're doing it properly, it allows you, as you said, to step away. Um, and if you're not micromanaging, then you can step away and you're not supposed to be micromanaging anyway. So solves a lot of problems, right? Yep, it does indeed. Keith, thank you so much for your time today. Wonderful discussion. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you.